also want to talk to you about Venezuela. An investigation by The New York Times found several trucks carrying so-called humanitarian aid that were set ablaze during a showdown at the Colombia-Venezuela border last month were not caused by President Nicolas Maduro's forces, as was widely reported at the time by both media and Trump administration officials. This is Vice President Mike Pence. Maduro's loyalists turned on their own people. As the world watched, they set fire to trucks loaded with food and medicine desperately needed by the Venezuelan people. Independent journalist Max Blumenthal first raised questions about what happened in a piece on February 24th that was headlined, Burning Aid, Interventionist Deception on Colombia-Venezuela Bridge. Max Blumenthal, really excited to be talking to you. Uh, love having you on the show. Love being on the show every once in a while. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. When was the last time I was on the show? Oh, wait, do you have headphones so I don't get the echo? Yeah, but I'm speaking into a microphone. That's okay. Uh, you're, in other words, because you don't have headphones, my audio. Yeah, I can do on. it. I can do it. It's okay. All right, thanks. If you want. I love that Max makes the most like quotidian, mundane tasks sound like he's rescuing someone from the top of a mountain or something. If you need me to do it, I'll do it. I can do it. There's a child up there. Yeah. All right, I can do it. So um, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you is because you're kind of a unique authority right now in two things that are happening. One is what's happening in Venezuela, and the other thing is what's happening with um, all the Michigas with Ilan Omar and Israel. And of course, all this stuff we're not talking about because we're talking about Ilan Omar, which is all the stuff in Israel. So, which one do you want to start with? Well, you. I've just been in Venezuela, and I've also been a Jew who was number four on the Simon Wiesenthal top anti-Semites list. Did that so, give you an inferiority complex because you weren't top three? You didn't even make bronze. I always say, I, you know, next year I'll outdo the Ayatollah. <laughs> next, but next year, <laughs> they always— Next year in Jerusalem, yeah. They always put some Iranian guy at number one because— I don't know. I guess they don't want to, Israel doesn't want to bomb me. Right. At least with not, not as much enthusiasm with which they want to bomb Iran. Yeah. I mean, they would bomb me, but it, Iran is more of a priority. Right. Yeah. Bad optics if they bomb you off, though. If directly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Which way do you want to go? This is like a rabbinical thing. Which way we have. Well, you're the, ho you're, you're oh, the I host. You're the host. All right. So, fine. so why don't we start <laughs> with. Um, I know, burn burn from both of us. Um, why don't we start with uh, Venezuela? Just give a little summary on what's going on with Venezuela. Well, right now, uh, there's a major electricity blackout, which the Venezuelan government is blaming on sabotage. Um, I don't know if it's sabotage or not, but to see U.S. officials like and lawmakers like Marco Rubio, who's really the most, the biggest loudmouth on the coup, uh, celebrate it really shows Venezuelans what U.S. leadership wants for them, which is that regardless of their political stripes or how they feel about the government, the U.S. is happy to see them suffer as long as it advances regime change. You know, there is a blackout. And while we're not sure if it's sabotage, I can say for sure that last week, a uh, food warehouse where f free food, food that's basically distributed for free uh, to Venezuelans, to the working and poor Venezuelan population by the government was burned down, probably by the opposition. 
Uh, thousands of boxes of food were destroyed. Oh, the week before, um, oil, uh, extra- oil extraction facilities were attacked and with explosives on Venezuela's coast. And there's just a long history of opposition sabotage. Uh, maternity ward was burned in 2017, along with food warehouses. And the U.S. has a history of um, sabotaging the electricity grids and electrical infrastructure of countries it's targeted for regime change, most notably a uh, month before Salvador Allende was killed. Uh, that took place in Chile in the middle of an Allende speech, a massive blackout. So, uh, And then, of course, they helped kill him uh, during the coup. The CIA supported the uh, over the coup. Absolutely. And Pinochet's party uh, recently endorsed uh, Juan Guaido, the awesome. U.S. self-appointed puppet leader of Venezuela. And in case uh, listeners don't know, Pinochet was a dictator of Chile who uh, really was a trailblazer in a lot of torture methods. So... Uh, and yeah. replace the the uh, democratically elected Allende overthrew him. Yeah. Yeah, the helicopter. A lot of stuff. Whatever they did to uh, Victor Hara, breaking his hands and so on. Anyway, uh, so they, they, there's a coup underway, and it's not really. I actually watched it fall apart with my own eyes. It's failed completely. Um, it started on July, I'm sorry, January 22nd when Mike Pence called Juan Guaido and said, you know, can you do this? We want to appoint you as president. Like 500 military flipped out of something like 300,000. Um, Mike Pence is now furious, according to this Argentinian report, that Guaido misled him. They thought it was going to be a cakewalk. Uh, plan A completely failed. They went to plan B, which is to ram the humanitarian aid through on February 23rd. And you remember they had the Battle of the Bands with Richard Branson's ridiculous live aid concert. Um, Peter Gabriel actually pulled out of it. Branson said he wanted to raise $100 million and he raised like $2 million. And I think all of these like Colombian trash pop acts each got paid $2 million. So it was just a sham. And, you know, that really failed to produce the escalation. I thought they were going to try to like say, oh, Maduro like stopped the aid and now we need to intervene because he's so cruel. Um, but that didn't happen. So that failed to happen. And now we're at plan C, which is, you know, electricity slowly being restored around Caracas. I'm not there anymore. Um, but the U S doesn't really have a clear plan of action beyond sanctions. And so they're going to sanction everyone from Maduro on down to his dog. Uh, they just, sanctioned the economics minister today or like uh, put out a warrant for his arrest. They're just going crazy with sanctions. They withdrew the visas of 77 officials. And it's very clear that sanctions will deepen the economic hardship, which is real. And at the same time, there was a really interesting hearing packed with Venezuelan exiles and Cuban exiles and had two experts. One of them was a guy from the Council on the Americas, which is a corporate roundtable for Latin America, and they basically front these experts, like this guy Eric Farnsworth, who just rattles off every regime change talking point you can think of. But he's basically acting on behalf of their corporate board, which is like Exxon, Chevron, uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and the financial industry that wants to get its ta- their talons back into Venezuela. Um, 
So you know where he's coming from. And then they had this lady from the Woodrow Wilson Center, which is funded by the U.S. government. And she was a little bit more moderate than Farnsworth and actually started arguing with Rubio and said, you know, well, first of all, Rubio said we, we need widespread unrest as a strategy to promote regime change, you know, violent riots. And she said, you know, widespread unrest, of course, that's necessary. We all recognize the need for that. However, starving people don't get out into the streets. And so I worry with these sanctions that people will be starving and will be so desperate that they won't even protest. And Rubio was pretty annoyed by that. Um, But it's the truth. Even like the regime change experts in Congress are recognizing that sanctions are going to starve people. at the same time, I don't think that sanctions are going to cause regime change. I think the Venezuelan government has a strategy to start um, increasing uh, its oil exports and to be able to receive the assets that the U.S. is trying to block with sanctions. And that means turning to other countries, which are rising powers, like China and Russia, which is a resurgent power. Turkey has been a big supporter of Venezuela. And then you have opening markets in the African Union, which has also rejected uh, Juan Guaido and the U.S. regime change plan. And uh, so I think we're going to have to wait and see. But Venezuela is interesting, not just because you're seeing a a regime change, another regime change attempt be stymied, Mm -hmm. but because we're actually kind of watching the world order shift. And that will have implications for domestic U.S. politics. Um, You know, are people going to really support another democratic nominee who wants to keep this kind of unipolar world order going where we think we can just take out all the countries that oppose us or people going to support someone who wants to start investing in our own infrastructure and giving humanitarian aid to our own population. So I think there's so many implications that are interesting about Venezuela that it's really worth paying attention to even if you're not interested. And what did you uh, observe as someone because you went there? How long were you there for? Where did you go? What did you see? I was there for two and a half weeks, mostly in Caracas, in all different areas of the city. And I went to uh, Vargas State, which is next door, um, and saw nothing that could remotely be called a humanitarian crisis. It reminded me a lot of being in other Latin American countries, except the infrastructure was much better because mm-hmm. it's a very wealthy state that you know whose economy revolves around oil, right. um, and there. You know, they have high, like a really advanced highway system. They have a metro system in Caracas that's very functional. Um, you know, gasoline is basically free because the oil is plentiful. Um, you do have an economic crisis where the currency has been devalued. Um, and it's not just because of socialism. Like the Republicans say, two-thirds of the economy is controlled by private finance. And so, you know, there's speculation. There's a black market. I stayed in an opposition stronghold area for the last week and a half, which is an upper middle class neighborhood where people look like us. There's, there were sushi restaurants on the corner. They had, um, you know, actually, I'm not even like making it up. There, you know, in the afternoon, there would be ladies walking down the street with their yoga mats. So um, important. So radical f- self care, Max. Radical yes, self care. Really Venezuelans important. do, you know, they have to do self care under the communist dictatorship. Yeah. And, uh, you know, behind this area actually is a barrio that's mostly Colombians who have fled Colombia, which is the U.S. protectorate, kind of our our ally. And they actually prefer to live in Venezuela right now. So that's an interesting oh, that is thing interesting. People, people don't know. But uh, maybe we you know, should be in, um, you know, regime change in Colombia then. 
uh, you know, a lot of Colombians would support that, but um, we also supported right-wing militia, paramilitaries yeah, know, to prevent that from taking place. So, you know, being in this opposition stronghold, you see, I mean, I did several videos there. I did a video from a supermarket where I showed that, you know, you can get everything you want if you have the money to buy it that you can get in the US. It's not like there are empty shelves. And uh, I went to a shopping mall, which was like a luxury shopping mall, and asked people, where's the socialism? Where can I find communism here? Because Trump has portrayed Venezuela as North Korea. Um, And they said, well, that's a minority in this country. You know, we don't have that here. This is capitalism. And that's part of the problem. I mean, that's Mm, a big source of the economic crisis. Um, is that, you know, what Chavismo has attempted to do is democratic socialism in a mixed economy and to set up their own companies to compete with these private companies. It's So it's much more complex than the U.S. media wants to make it out to be. Obviously, it's worse than that. I mean, the U.S. media simply invented a reality in order to advance an information war designed to push a real war. And, right. you know, you just go around the city and it's people are going about business as usual. Um, in 2016, the government implemented a program called CLAP, which is to distribute basic foodstuffs and sanitary and hygiene supplies. It's ironic, to the, the CLAP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know you think about it like that in the coming from the U.S. and you're like, did you get the CLAP? And people are like, yes, it's a good thing. But, I'm really loving it. Yeah. Thank God I got um, it. It's a Spanish acronym. Yeah, of and course. CLAP. People get these bags of like enough food for two weeks and toothpaste and everything that because uh, the black market and speculation has driven food prices so high and the salaries don't support it. So that's kept people above the subsistence level um, among the poorest of the population, kind of prevented them from starving. And people understand that if Juan Guaido comes in, the economic situation probably won't improve and they will lose the, these basic government programs, right. along with free health care, along with um, you know free education, along with um, housing that has been supplied to 2.5 to 3 million people. And I also got to go to a housing complex that was more uh, working class, middle class, uh, that was established by Chavez. You know, you have to pay rent there, but it's very mm-hmm. affordable. And it was kind of it was like a utopia. I'm not saying that. That's the situation everywhere. This is very, very dangerous. Here, families playing as it got dark. There were jogging and bike lanes, and there were these. This was like Jane Jacobs style mixed right. use commercial housing, um, and it was a former military base that was converted into this massive housing complex to help solve the housing crisis that existed before Chavez was in power. And the people who don't like. Um, Maduro and who like Guaido, what is it that they object to that happens with Maduro in power? What is it that they, the people who like Guaido? Yeah, and want to remove Maduro. What's their, what I are mean, their there are motives? different. there are different levels. I mean, from the middle class and upper middle class, it's that, you know, they would like to experience the oil boom that they had uh, in the past. Under Chavez, there was an oil boom. And so they were getting second cars. They were getting taking long vacations. They have to take their vacations in Venezuela now, for example. There are cultural issues. Uh, they are white or light-skinned, and they don't want some bus driver to be in power, which is what Maduro was. And, and Chavez you know, is the um, son of a black woman who looks like very mestizo and very dark-skinned. And 
you know, they would insult him and call him like Indio and right. like just look down on him, even though he had, you know, he had a master's degree. He oh, was a brilliant, brilliant student of, of Venezuelan and Latin American literature and of philosophy. I mean, if you read interviews with him, it's like very clear you're dealing with someone who has so much more intellectual acumen than his opponents. Also um, good at chemistry because he was able to identify the smell of sulfur. Definitely. In his 2006 UN speech, he detected it after Bush's uh, speech, yeah. which preceded him. Yesterday, the devil came here. Right here. And it smells of sulfur still today. I'm glad you brought that up because 2006 was like the big year in Venezuela when their economy was doing so well, the Al Alba program where they were sharing their oil wealth with other countries was helping drive the progressive wave in Latin America. And the following year, after Chavez delivered this speech where he really came into his own as an anti-imperialist leader and was no longer just the kind of nationalist who had right. come out of the military. He was no longer just a patriot. He was kind of taking on the mantle of Che Guevara the U.S. began its soft power programs of destabilization, and that's when they started training people like Juan Guaido, Leopoldo Lopez. Um, to carry. That's when they put in plans for these kind of Guarimba-style riots. What's um, that? What's Guarimba-style? They basically blockaded off opposition areas like the one that I was living in and then would attack uh, police and security forces and hold, hold protests at private universities that were bases of opposition support. Hundreds died in a few blocks from where I was staying. A black man named Orlando Figuera was burned alive in 2017 after being identified as a Chavez supporter. And this was caught on camera. And it was a real turning point for people in Venezuela. Uh, so I talked about the cultural clash. I didn't even know uh, about that. And I mean, I try to be somewhat informed. I mean, just Google Orlando Figuera. Um, and who was responsible for that? Opposite. The opposition protesters from the, the, what you would call the Guarimberos. Okay. It took place in um, Chacao, Altamira, which is a upscale area, which is the financial district of Caracas. The main opposition leader to that point, Leopoldo Lopez, who is an aristocrat, the direct descendant of Venezuela's first president, light-skinned, white, white guy. Uh, he was the mayor. I mean, he, this happened under his watch. All kinds of right-wing terror happened under the watch of all of these opposition yeah. leaders. But this is the most heinous because it was caught on camera. And it was just a black man walking down the street. And oh they said, God. Chavista, they poured gas on him and Jesus burned him as he ran down the street. Christ. And so, you know, for people oh watching God. that, people watching that in the barrios, people watching that across the country who weren't part of this opposition bubble, they said, you know, we need to defend ourselves against these maniacs or they're, you know, we're next. Um, and so they kind of batten down the hatches. And so when I would go to the opposition rallies, I mean, it's just so, it's almost like a cartoon. Can you imagine, by the way, I mean, if it had been the opposite, if a Chavez person had, or an opposition person had been burned alive, the New York Times wouldn't stop covering it. I mean, it would be front and center, every publication, every TV show, every cable well, news the channel. Well, the New York Times, they did this in Nicaragua, too, and like the U.S. government did it, which is that they take the whole death toll um, during the vi the most violent Warimbas were 2016, 2017, because of siege. It would just take the total number, which was in the 300s, and attribute it all to the government because they were having these right. what they would call protests, but they were violent riots that would not be tolerated in the U.S. The National Guard would have been called in and people would have been shot. 
Um, and they did that in Nicaragua too, where they had the same thing. They were called tranques, where they would do uh, road blockades, extort motorists, uh, hold na entire neighborhoods hostage, and try to declare them like liberated territory by the opposition junta. People, you know, an eleven-year-old girl was uh, raped at one of these. A police officer, who was a female unarmed police officer, was uh, raped for several days by My tranquistas. God. Uh, another police officer who was unarmed and was working with at-risk youth, uh, Gabriel Jesus uh, Vado, was uh, dragged to death by a truck and then burned, had his corpse burned on camera at a tranque in the Monimbo area of Messiah. None of this was reported by U.S. media. Tons, many cops were killed by these figures um, who were in their police stations. They weren't even out in the streets. And, so they, the death toll includes the so, people killed by the opposition. Yeah, and, and the U.S. In the U.S. Yeah. media, they just say 300 were killed or however this many were killed, and it would be always blamed on the government. But over half in the Guarimbas were killed by the opposition. They even they used a tactic called the guaya, where they would wrap a, bar, a piece of barbed wire across a road to try to close it off, and people were beheaded oh my um, God. trying to get through the roads. And Juan Guaido was actually asked about this in 2016, about that tactic, and he called it a myth because okay. it was his forces who were behind it. I mean, he looks, they dress him up like Obama and put him on the back of a motorcycle. Uh, he's the worst speaker I ever saw. Uh, it's like Obama without a teleprompter. Yeah. I mean, he, he he's afraid of public speaking. He has the charisma of like a can of paint. And at the same time, it's it's deceiving like his image is very deceptive because behind him are the most violent radical right. elements of the opposition and he seems kind of like a nerd almost yeah totally he seems like a yuppie on his way yeah. to work his little right. briefcase right couldn't believe it but i could also that marco rubio he tweeted an image of um Gaddafi and when he was bloodied because uh Gaddafi, which was something that i didn't again i didn't really know about how he died until like a year ago I didn't know that he was sodomized. No, this was um, that picture that Rubio tweeted was while he was being or uh, sodomized. Uh, there's video evidence that a bayonet was shoved up his ass while he was basically being driven into a drainage ditch where he was going to be shot. Then they took him to a butcher shop in uh, near in Misrata and left his rotting corpse on a mattress for these. Uh, fanatical opposition supporters to take victory selfies with. And it's important to note that he wasn't like, it was, you know, the way that the US media portrayed Gaddafi's death is that he was somehow exposed to the public and that he was, right. it, it's as if this is what the public in Libya right. would have done to him walking down the street. And actually he was in his hometown of Sirte where he was had launched his revolution in 1969. Um, he, he was very popular there. And the U.S. had launched this brutal – NATO had launched this brutal bombing campaign of CERT that had reduced a lot of the town center to nothing. And opposition elements, namely the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which was a longtime al-Qaeda ally, which had been armed by Qatar and supported by the U.S., was brought in as the kind of you know proxy force. And they attacked Gaddafi's motorcade as it attempted to flee the carpet bombing of this city – um, lots of people were massacred. Bodies were found outside a hotel nearby of his supporters. And his bodyguards, who are black African Libyans, were beheaded by these 
fanatical Al-Qaeda allies who were actually, when they attacked his motorcade, they were being supported with NATO air power. So NATO was there bombing the front and back of Gaddafi's motorcade so that they could proceeded to go on an anti-black pogrom across Libya, uh, murdering black Libyans who they saw as sort of the supporters of Gaddafi who had been protected by his government. So this is this is this is all about Rubio's tweet. Rubio thinks this is all good. Right. He thinks know, that amazing. if he tweets yeah. this, it's like, oh, I'm sending a message to scare the dictator or something. But if you're Venezuelan and you see it, uh, you know, of course, if you support the government, you're going to be like, they're going to turn our country into Libya. Libya is hell. Right. But do you think that it landed on – I feel like even Americans who aren't pro-Qaddafi – I mean I don't know how – I don't see any polling. But I feel like that just came off as a terrible image. Maybe real jingoists embraced it. But I I, I don't – it seems so unacceptable that a a senator would post that. Yeah, I think uh – it, 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 it should have been more. It should have been more of a scandal right. than Ilhan Omar, which we'll talk about. Right. But you know, so many people have their had their um, kind of. So many people were involved in 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 making that moment possible in Washington, and so many people celebrated that moment in Washington. So but they just kind of don't want to celebrate it. I was kind of too quiet about it at the time because I was like, "Oh, the Arab Spring is a good thing." Um, you know, then I saw what happened to Gaddafi. I said, maybe Libya is fucked. Um, then I started learning more about it. And I have a book coming out that deals with this heavily next month, uh, called the management of savagery, I have it. which is about the impact. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who has it or what. Um, but it's about the kind of repercussions of us regime change policy in the middle East. And I think it applies directly to Venezuela when Rubio does that. You know, it sabotages Elliot Abrams, who's trying to get right. the it's trying to get the military to flip in Venezuela, and he's trying to use all these incentives. He's trying to use threats. He's trying to pay them, whatever. And then they see that they're like, okay, we're going to get killed if we defect, especially the high command. So beyond the fact that they are very patriotic, that they're nationalistic, that they hate the U.S. empire, which has destroyed so much of Latin America, the real uh, power players in the Venezuelan military don't want to be sodomized with a bayonet. They're weird like that. Yeah, I don't know who I wouldn't. It's a cultural use. thing. I can't relate to it. Well, you know, it's it's funny. It's like I mean, it, the prostate is very sensitive. I don't know over there, not here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Rubio also undermines um, Elliot Abrams in that Elliot Abrams is pretending to be doing this for democracy's sake, right? And then when you tweet out a photo that's so based in illegal violence and it's so bloody we usually try to sanitize our operations there but rubio i think it's probably partly because he's cuban-american lives in florida um is so entitled and like has no pushback from the most disgusting uh foreign policy views yeah uh i i i remember watching jake tapper interview john bolton and he kind of like attacks Bolton from the right and comes at Bolton from the right and is like, are you sure this deal with Korea can be ironclad? Do you really trust the North Koreans? Do you really? And then the one question about Venezuela and Marco Rubio is like, Marco Rubio wants to do temporary protected status for Venezuelan exiles. Can you guarantee that? It's like Marco Rubio is the humanitarian in all of this, right. according to Oh, my God. Jake and he's Tapper. trying to push Bolton to be uh, firmer, yeah. tougher, yeah. Yeah, more yeah, iron fisted. Like, 
It's like, Mr. Cheney, can you really assure us that all Iraqi children will be drowned in a sea of blood? Come on. Quit playing around. Oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs> By the way, Elliot Abrams, I think the biggest anti... I'm not, you know, nothing that Ilan Omar said was anti-Semitic. The real anti-Semitism comes when people identify uh, Elliot Abrams as a Jew. Like, if you care about Jews, <laughs> stop saying that. That's a stop real liability that, for us. Stop Stop acknowledging that Elliot Abrams is, is a Jewish. member of the tribe. Yeah, yeah. We really want to play that down. Not well, us. his wife would constantly remind us when she was alive that, you know, she was a big supporter of Israel who firmly believed in Palestinian genocide. And she had a blog called Bad Rachel. Uh, <laughs> naughty, so naughty Rachel. Yeah. Naughty Rachel wants to murder the Palestinians who she called like uh, demonic camel riders or mm. something. She said they teach their children, while well, Israeli children learn to play with transformers and, and play video games, Palestinian children learn to blow themselves up and, right. be, you know, worship Satan. Right. Um, Not even Allah. And, I thought it was Allah. I thought they'd go with the Allah line. Anyway. Allah. Too, too, uh, too, learnt, too I don't know, soft. Too much like God for her. Yeah. Too soft. Yeah. I'm just saying that was his wife. I mean, who, what do you think? You know, th this is like their pillow talk. Right. Bad Rachel. This is Elliot Abrams. Talk He's Rachel a big to me. Talk bad Rachel. Let's talk about, let's talk about, uh, you know, drowning Palestinian children in the tunnels of Gaza. It's like, this is who Elliot Abrams is. He's a member of the Israel lobby too. And Ilhan Omar's questioning of him over Venezuela. If you noticed like the reaction on Twitter, who was upset by it was a lot of people who are affiliated with the Israel lobby and think uh, progress and center for American progress. Oh yeah. Cap. Yeah. Who, who, who was it there? That was, I upset. forget her name, but there's one woman. In oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who was who like, is I've saying, worked yeah. with him. Right. Right. That's true. And she's a cap. I mean, there you go. That's near attendance, yeah. uh, little Potemkin right. village. Yeah. I thought it was amazing that Ilan Omar, I mean, I think she's the bravest politician out there right now. Because the fact that after getting called an anti-Semite twice, she went after Elliot Abrams and connected, you know, anyone who, who pretends that she just picks on Israel, it's so obvious she doesn't because uh, she talks about Saudi Arabia, she talks about Venezuela. Also, the whole idea of picking on Israel, when, when it, you can't say that we have a special relationship with Israel all the time and then be like, why are you talking about Israel? Why are you talking about North Korea? Because... We constantly say how much we hate North Korea. It's so it's such a no-brainer. It's such a stupid argument. Yeah, I was pretty blown away by the fact that she went there. She just made some really important comments about Obama. Yeah, that I think a lot. A lot of us really felt like Obama betrayed. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't like that into him like everyone yeah, in two thousand eight. We were at the DNC the, together. That's right. when you were Team Hillary, big time. I can't believe you it. Know, Sorry, I don't mean to blow up your spot. I just couldn't get it. I mean, Obama was the nominee, so I don't know how I was supporting Hillary, but uh, you are. I, you were like under your. I can take this out if you're too embarrassed by it. But you were definitely like not excited about him, and, and felt like Hillary should have been the nominee. I at the t I, I would say I was not excited about him, but you know, as I watched him win the nomination and so on, I just couldn't get excited. I saw no evidence that he was going to be progressive. Right. And I kind of like had this impulse to stick it to all the Obamaites right, who yeah. 
and, and I just thought, you know, if Hillary won, it would just be such a fun way of sticking it to them. It was yeah. kind of like being a, like a troll mentality, yeah. which I obviously abandoned in 2016 when I saw what she really was, right, yeah. was just a right wing Democrat. But and and there were things about Obama that were I, I don't know if there would have been an Iran deal if Hillary had been president. But right. but anyway, the She's point wrong, is that yeah. the Obama administration was a gigantic betrayal of everyone uh, and it helped lead to Trump including the way he handled the economic collapse and so many other things. Um, you know, my, my book that's coming out next month, I go into how his foreign policy helped set the stage for Trump. And Ilhan Omar maybe basically said this in Politico. And then today I just saw that she tweeted uh, audio of her interview saying, I'm a huge Obama fan. Uh, they got it wrong. And, you know, I don't understand the backpedaling, but she's still someone who's out there saying things that we, she basically has been like expressing a lot of the things that we've said, you know, you've said on your podcast that we've basically believed, but we never had anyone in federal government to um, convey our views in Congress or somewhere. Right. Um, you know, you, you just had to settle for something. Right, exactly, yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a, the impulse to defend her, and I think it's good because it's mobilized uh, wider debate about APAC. It's shown, um, it's lifted the mask on the New York Times op-ed section. Um, it's, li you know, a lot, they're just, the mask keeps lifting in the Trump era. Right. Uh, it's tough to start having that effect and to take on mainstream, to take on mainstream media and call it the fake news media from the left right. and to take on the national security state from right. the left. And, you know, a lot of people I see saying, you know, she needs to go further and talk about the UN report on Israel's shooting of protesters in right. Gaza. She needs to do this. I I think that the the ultimate role she can play, once this is over, assuming it blows over, is to push Bernie Sanders from mm -hmm. the left and to be a uh, effective surrogate for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's like baby. It's hard for me to be too angry at her, or even I know lots of people are angry at Ocasio, but. And we should push her too, but I guess I think we should push her in a way that's not quite as like you're canceled. You know, I could push Ocasio Cortez a lot more if I was like a magazine editor of a glossy magazine, or if right. I had something to offer her on a congressional right. committee. Um, but you know, she's not. I don't think she's as actually going to be as responsive to grassroots pressure because she has some ambition for something much more. And Ilhan Omar just wants to represent her district, which is. Uh, largely Somali American district uh, with a lot of people who've had her same experience and yeah. want her to manifest her experience as a refugee and as someone who's been in a district which has been under heavy FBI surveillance uh, into political Didn't action. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so should we talk about um, our favorite, Megan McCain? Sure. I mean, I I try to avoid talking about her, but she's just kind of forcing the issue. Right. It says. I mean, it says a lot about uh, our country not being a democracy that Meghan McCain is being talked about by us. What do you mean? Well, I mean, her father right. comes from a long line of military aristocracy uh, all the way back to George Washington's army. And they are they were they were made wealthy through their political and elite and military connections. Uh, her father was actually a terrible pilot who was shot down because of mistakes he made. Right. That, um, I did love when Trump was like, look, for me, a hero, he doesn't get caught. 
It was kind yeah. of amazing to watch. I, I, and a lot of people loved it. A lot of veterans loved it, especially Vietnam veterans. Uh, and McCain, he sang like a bird when he was in the Hanoi Hilton. He gave up locations of U.S. Navy. He gave advanced intelligence to Vietnamese interrogators. Uh, then he returned with that's the congressional. For the left. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Thanks. that's good for the Jane Fonda left. Yeah. You know, Hanoi Jane. But, you know, his uh, he returned with a congressional seat just ready for him in Arizona and then a Senate seat. He was supported for years by the arms industry, by the extraction industry. And he, and then he spent his career palling around with war criminals and Nazis, including jihadists in Syria and Libya. The guys who killed Gaddafi, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, the leader of the Libyan Islamic fighting group, who was a longtime Al-Qaeda affiliate, got a special meeting in Benghazi with John McCain, where John McCain declared, they are not Al-Qaeda. John McCain went to um, Maidan Square in Ukraine in 2014 um, during the coup there that was taking place and got set, went on stage with Ole Tianbach, who is a straight-up neo-Nazi, to address the crowd. Tianbach has been... Video. Uh, he's been photographed Sig Heiling. Mm. He's the founder of the Social National Party. Does that sound familiar to you? Or, yeah, the National Socialist Party, yeah. Nazi Party. It's modeled after the Nazi Party. It. He is also the co-founder with the Ukrainian politician who's now the head of the Ukrainian Parliament, the Rada, named Andrei Perubi, of Patriot of Ukraine, which is a neo-Nazi militia. And Andre Peruvi was granted a special audience in Washington with John McCain in 2017. Um, McCain even went to meet a Ukrainian far-right militia in the field in 2015. So the guy is like, I think there are more anti-Semitic incidents uh, that John McCain has been involved in than Ilhan Omar. But Meghan McCain, I don't know. How do you muster up tears for this? It's really weird. First of all, I love the idea of her. I love the idea of her watching... um you know, listening to Omar, Ilan Omar, and being like, oh my God, I'm so triggered by the dual allegiance trope that I'm so well versed with. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah I, yeah, I know she's pretending, I know she's not claiming that she knew it, but once she learned about it, I guess, but I love the like, the like liberal I think studies. everybody, everybody's pretending. Yeah, of course, yeah. But every everybody's pretending to be right. upset about yeah. it. It's all like this fake manufactured scandal because she said uh, loyalty to a foreign country. Allegiance. Uh, allegiance, people said, oh, well, let's uh, say it's an yeah. anti-Semitic trip. It sounds like dual loyalty. Right. Um, it's funny because to- Jonathan, just really quickly, Jonathan Chait, who started this smear round three, he got the story from, a, um, he linked to a story at um, Jewish Insider by and it, no okay he he said Lauren Kelly Laura Kelly which sounds like a a Shiksa name um he didn't say Jewish insider anyway but her piece actually the headline of it was like Omar and Tlaib talk about how um a- accusations of anti-semitism stifle uh discussion of of the Israeli Palestinian conflict or something like that her article was much more robust in what what she quoted i have a piece up at fair now on this but uh of course Jonathan Chait quoted one part of it. That's it. Yeah, he missed. Well, surprise. It's surprising that he missed. I know. I mean, I I could go off on him. um, But, you know, that 
is the way that everybody's been reporting on it, which yeah. is to not quote what she's saying right. in order to perpetuate. Right. And the it's so sense. it's so meta because she said one of the things she said is no matter what we say, we're accused of being anti-Semitic to shut down a conversation. And of course, what happened is that she was accused of being anti-Semitic and no one has talked about important stories related to Israel this week. Megan McCain, I guess, wanted to kind of um, expose herself to the controversy and get in the limelight. It's something that she's done a lot um, because, I mean, she's famous for nothing. She's kind of like a card, like it's like mm, the, war, right. the, war, the war crimes Kardashians or something. Right. And uh, it backfired because she's just such a self-parody. Right. She's such an obvious goyish or shiksa. She, yeah, she couldn't wear her know? shiksas and more on her sleeve, yeah. And she is just so obviously disingenuous in her outrage um, that it kind of exposed – it was like the opening we were waiting for to right. expose farce for what it was. Um, but, you know, just back to my point about Meghan McCain – you know, why is she there at all? Why is she on The View? I mean, I don't know why The View is on, but <laughs> why is she on The View? What has she done? I remember when she was breaking out as like this political personality. It was when The Daily Beast was launched right. and I was like one of their staff writers. And she was just came on all of a sudden. And it was so obvious that what she was writing was ghostwritten. And yeah. it was kind of like engineered by John McCain's team to make her into a public figure. Right. Then you watch her speech McCain's funeral where she's like she has this psychotic rabid look on her face while she's like gets it from her dad yes yeah he fought in Vietnam too and but it was the speech was so obviously written by Mark Salter uh who is McCain's longtime oh my god yeah who called Bernie like a, fo a Castro loving fossil or something right right and you have know, you seen him he's not exactly a spring chicken and neither was his boss <laughs> yeah when you work for McCain and you help him comb his hair like you can't. You don't get to call other right. politicians fossils. And it takes years off your life too. Like Bernie can do a layup. You know, I know. Do... I want all these people who make fun of him to to like challenge him to a basketball game, including Trump. Oh yeah. So there's that too. Trump is not. I don't know what his physical condition is, but bloat. And he looks like he has gout. Gout. He has like his face is like a goiter yeah. coming out of his neck. But anyway, um, so the McCain. I mean, she's just like. This, 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 Shiksa Shiksa, this, yeah. this, this, this comically conceived holographic facade of a decrepit, degenerate oligarchy that's been totally discredited. And now she cries about some comment about APAC. <laughs> I mean, she's crying for APAC, which is like the most sociopathic right. institution. It's like what. Allen Ginsberg was talking about in Howell when he talks about the Moloch. It's yeah. like, that's what it is. We don't even know. No one can name one APAC official, like right. uh, an APAC staffer. That's what they are. Like, they don't even want us to know who they are. And so it's just like this farce. And then you have like her husband, this guy, Ben Dominic, Ben Dominic, who I remember when I used to work at Media Matters back in like the Bush era. Uh, he, 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 he emerged as this kind of like right wing boy one, this guy went down on multiple plagiarism, not charges. It was just, he was just a serial plagiarist right. who was ripping everybody off left and right to try to become this big right wing columnist. He's reemerged with this publication, the federalist, which, you know, is pretty, seems to be pretty well-funded. 
I don't know if like it came through McCain's network, but you know, they, they haven't had like the best record on writing about Jews there. Um, Let's see. Here's a piece from 2016. We all know the stereotypes for Jewish women and girls. Aggressive, demanding, pushy. Some might even say whiny. If you're a Jewish man, you've either given voice to these opinions or privately considered them while walking home after another argument or sitting in a restaurant feeling emasculated. He's Jewish. Um, ben Domage? I don't know if he's Jewish, but this is uh, on the website. Right. Let me see who it th- – let me see. And either yeah. way, it sounds like projection. It's by – oh, shit. This is interesting. It's by a guy named Joshua Seidel who is the Jewish member of the alt-right who's like a Jewish white supremacist. Oh, nice. Uh, who would troll me a lot. Um, so that was on Ben Dominic's website, fe- but he didn't write it. Yeah, got it. No, he didn't write it. But someone apparently even more unsavory than him, Joshua Seidel, wrote it who's like a follower of um, Richard Spencer uh-huh. wrote it. So – Basically, like the Jewish guy in the white hood, you know, he's he wears a kippa under his white hood. Like he's like, let's just burn crosses on black people's lawns. Uh, That's who wrote it. And it seems like he doesn't like Jewish women. I don't know. I mean, we could like make those jokes ourselves. Yeah, but it's a little different when you're writing a right wing publication. I know I know plenty of, you know, non-Jewish women and people who act like that. Um, so anyway, it, it definitely had an MRA tone to it as well. But the point is, like, clean up your own house. Um, then there's Pastor Hagee. We haven't even gotten I into know. Pastor Hagee. I miss him from there's the spotlight. Pa- yeah. I miss Pastor Hagee a lot. He's really entertaining. I know. He's like this rotund figure. He's he kind of looks like – kind of. He's like a cross between, like, Elmer Gantry and the Penguin – and some Edward G. Robinson style villain. He's definitely like would be better in a black and white film as like he looks like a cartoon character. He's a faith healing Pentecostal preacher from Cornerstone Church in San Antonio whose endorsement John McCain happily accepted in 2008 because McCain always had a problem with the Christian right. Yeah. What is his religion? The thing is McCain is not evangelical. Right. And you either have to be evangelical or you have to just be a right-wing psychopath, draconian, right. fire breather like Trump to uh, get the Christian right. right to support you. Basically, you just have to tell them, I'm going to appoint right. like, extreme anti-abortion people to the courts like Trump did. Yeah. And McCain always had this relationship with the Christian right in Arizona and in Congress where he just didn't always want their people to be on the federal bench. He, he wasn't a, an accomplished enough war criminal, I think. For the no, Christian I mean, right. they, if he had killed they, more that, blood in his hands, maybe. That's why. That's why. Pay, that's why Hagee endorsed him because Hagee was there to like have war on Iran. Right. McCain, McCain was going to do that, or so he thought. Right. Um, so anyway, McCain was like, "Yeah, finally, I got one of these nut jobs uh, on my team." Its problem was that Hagee really was a member of the Christian right who believed that the Antichrist was Jewish. And I found this sermon. I mean, the the sermons of Hagee, they're just pure gold. Like every single one of them is just outlandish. And this one, he said, um, when the the Antichrist returns, no, no, when the Antichrist returns, he will be homosexual and half Jewish as Hitler was (laughs) with fierce features. Right. Then he added with fierce features. It's like he's going to be fierce. 
Like the, the Sounds like maybe he has a crush on him. It was very vivid, and I don't know. The, I wrote about it at the Huffington Post when they used to allow anybody to write anything there. And it was like it was like writing on the bathroom wall, and uh, it had a big impact, uh, along with the other comments that Hagee had made um, about um, Hitler being a hunter and Herzl being a fisher and how they worked together to bring the Jews to Israel to fulfill biblical prophecy. So kind of like the Holocaust being a good thing. And then McCain decided to rescind the endorsement of Hagee. Right. But he was, you know, this was all out there and he knew about it. Just it just wasn't in the, it hadn't, hadn't been broken it, as a story yet. Right. Right. And that's actually, by the way, I mean, we did all this work at the Huffington Post and any other site that would let us put our research on it. Um, and that's back when like MSNBC would cover the Christian right as an actual scourge in society. So it was, I think, Keith Olbermann who kind of made a big, uh, you know, furor about that. Now furor. he just doesn't have the luxury. No pun intended. I know exactly. But he just doesn't have the luxury with Russia stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, we got to report on that twenty four seven because remember Keith Olbermann, like right after Trump's election, those weird rants he would do in his basement, <laughs> like G were they for GQ or something? He'd be like wrapped yeah. in the flag. I'm Keith Olbermann, and this is the resistance. And then he'd be like, resist, resist, <laughs> remove, peace. <laughs> no one even remembers how crazy that moment was, and he'll and then they had. That woman on Saturday Night Live dressed as Hillary Clinton singing Leonard Cohen. Oh my God, Kate McKinnon, that's a repressed memory. Yeah. Why don't you, I need a trigger warning for that. <laughs> hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I'm not giving up, and neither should you. And live from New York, it's Saturday night. That was amazing. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, my God. I just knew after Hillary lost, something crazy was going to happen, and it That's did. That's one of the many and things, now yeah. we're seeing that chapter close. Um, so I'm happy anyway that this debate took place about APAC. Yeah. I think they – lost in a way also uh, i think so also but really quickly she cried because she did you you saw the video of her right of megan i i actually haven't oh, seen can it. We I, watch didn't, it i didn't know there was i didn't know it was real i just was like oh no yeah, can i yeah, can we watch can it yeah her. hold on yeah. i can screen share i think with you let's see um and it's amazing because um well i don't want to give it away too much but she also the interaction between megan mccain and this woman of color who's actually jewish sunny I don't watch this shit. Me neither. But now I'm a big Sunny fan. Um, one second. Sunny. Hold on. Yes, yeah, Sunny. One second. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Why do people do that? Do you do that? <laughs> what do you mean? You know when you're happy about something in yeah. public, it's like it's like a show or something. You go, do you go, woo! I mean, if I'm an event, maybe. Um, I can't. I can't muster that noise inside myself. Did the um, mentioning the view make you think of that? Just cheering for Sonny, you know, from the live studio audience. Woo! <laughs> okay, here it is. Let's see. I'm just looking at Megan. I'm just looking at Megan McCain called call Ellie Valley, the Jewish cartoonist, an anti-Semite now. Also, I mean, how bad are you at Judar if you don't know Ellie Valley is Jewish? I know. I mean, the I know, name I mean, also, yeah. 
he's like one of the most Jewish people I know. I know. He's I like, don't think he'll be offended by that. No, like, me neither. Just, yeah. One of the people I can just confidently say is more Jewish than me. It's okay. I just sent it to you. All right. Megan McCain breaks down in so, tears. Oh, they got Abby Huntsman on there. Too. Why is that? Why is Abby is another uh, another more proof that we don't live in a democracy? Right. We're terrorized by these totally unaccomplished media created daughter charisma free daughters of Republicans. Right of center fail daughters. Yeah. But they're like their thing is that they like gay people. So they're like fun and woke. They have gay friends. Yeah. She also like Megan people. They're like, you know what? I would have burned a cross, but I I met a black person I liked, so I'm not going to do it. Hold on. I'm watching this. Um, This issue is a really intense one for me. And and just bear with me, because I know, Sonny, you and I in particular don't always agree. on. By the way, she's partly Jewish, that woman, Um, the black woman, Sonny. And I will tell you, I take this very personally as a woman of color who has, you know, been the subject of so much bigotry. And what a lot of people don't know is that my grandfather is Jewish. He is a Sephardic so, Jew. I've experienced firsthand in my family anti-Semitism and bigotry so, for being black. And so right. this whole, you know, thing, Sonny, I think it's just a distraction. Just, and oh, really? she says, like, I'm Jewish. My family's faced anti-Semitism. And Meghan McCain is just like, OK, are you comfortable with my, my talking again, Joy? Are you comfortable with me speaking now? Are we comfortable with me rebutting now? Yes. I want to say first and foremost, anti-Semitism shouldn't be a left or right issue. I don't think we should be politicizing it on either side because, as we know, if it's a tiki torch person in Charlottesville saying Jews will not replace us, or if it's the, we had Barry Weiss on to talk about sort of these uh, more dog whistle moments that, in my my view, Ilhan Omar is doing. A lot of Jewish people in this country, I think, are being asked... With the rise of anti-Semitism in this country, is it more important to defend party politics or is it more important to defend anti-Semitism? And we can have conversations all day long about how you feel about Israeli politics. Yes, excuse me, if you object to it. Mm -hmm. We can have a conversation all day long about how you feel about Palestinian politics, how you feel about Israeli politics, how you feel about Netanyahu. But in the same way that I fear what's happening with Corbyn in the UK, I fear that it's seeping its way over here in the United yes. States. Yeah. Um, I think we should talk about the comment that that she made that has spurned all of this discussion. Yes, Sonny. Right? She said, when um, we had Barry Weiss on as an expert in what is anti-Semitic and what isn't, I asked her, is it okay to talk about Israel's policies and not be called anti-Semitic? And she said and yes. And she said yes. She said where it crosses the line is when you say that Israel does not have the right to exist, that that is when it crosses the line. Now, Omar has never that. suggested no. that Israel does not have the right but to can exist. I say what she has so said? remember that Ilhan um, Omar in the West uh, Virginia Republican Party just had this huge poster superimposed with her face with 9-11 terrorists. And I haven't heard any outrage about that coming from the Republican Party. You have to admit, Megan, that it is disingenuous of the Republican Party to go after her, her point, when they are backing a president who who is in bed with dictators uh, committing human rights violations. Wait, what? What's the lady on the... The the lady on the left... uh, you mean physically? Lady. She's not Jewish. Joy Behar. Isn't Jewish. that hilarious? Joy Behar. I she's, always thought she was Jewish. Everyone thinks that. She's Italian. Okay. Well, her her retort was, this president is in bed with dictators? Like, how is that? 
like, wouldn't you? I thought she was going to say in bed with white supremacists. Right. Which been, but what does that have to do with anything? Just it's general like saying, He's problems. in bed with Wall Street. Like, <laughs> Except Wall Street okay. has the Jew thing, so that would have been oh, problematic. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. That would have been bad. But yeah, this is the best part. I take this very personally. I, I, I would go so far as to say I, I probably verge on being a Zionist as well. But I will say that <laughs> I don't have family that is Jewish, but... Joe Lieberman Damn right and Doc Lieberman are my family. Yeah. And oh man, I, I take the hate so crimes rising in this country incredibly seriously, and I think what's happening in Europe is really scary. And I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional, but the idea that this is politicized, I'm really not, I was very nervous to talk about this on the show, and just because I don't technically have Jewish family that are blood related to me, it doesn't mean I don't take this as seriously, and it is very dangerous. Very dangerous. And I think we all collectively as Americans on both sides, and what Ilan Homar is saying is very scary to me, and it's very scary to a lot of people, and I don't think you have to be Jewish to recognize you don't. that. I'm tired of the selective outrage, I and I I'm hope that we have a joint resolution, outrage. perhaps, from Republicans okay. and, and from the Democrats. I was waiting for the crowd to erupt when Meghan McCain did her little performance, yeah. and they didn't. Right. It was just kind of like, didn't. what the hell is wrong with you? Like, also, she's talking about APAC. And also, she's talking about the Liebermans. Um, who oh, yeah. is like all these people are totally f- cool with interacting with anti-Semites. Like Joe Lieberman would appear with Hagee. He called Hagee an Ish Elohim. Oh my God, that's the Moses, or, right? Uh, uh, a prophet? Yeah, like, uh, like Moses. I want to take the liberty of describing Pastor Hagee in the words that the Torah uses to describe Moses. He is an Ish Elohim, a man of God. And, and, and those words really do fit him. And I mean, and then you have like um, Netanyahu who goes to uh, Poland and they were trying to pass a law in Poland that said it was you could be sued for saying the Polish had something to do with the Holocaust. Like the Polish people were complicit in the Holocaust. They want to make that a suable offense. Um, and then Netanyahu pushed back on it. And the Polish guy was like really upset, the prime minister. And uh, was like, well, Polish people were complicit. Jews were complicit, which is hilarious. First, uh, Israel signed a memorandum of understanding with the Polish government that they would not protest that law. And then then it became an issue. Right. So because they want the military cooperation, the arms sales and all of that. And also, you know, the EU is a problem for Israel. Yeah. So anyway, uh, just I'm glad Meghan McCain thought that that was an appropriate thing to do. She doesn't obviously have much uh, capacity for self-reflection. She doesn't exactly have her finger on the pulse of where things are. And it exposed the manufactured outrage for the farce that it is, that someone would actually attempt to cry because they knew Joe and Hadassah Lieberman. And they're really... I, I think that, that she killed the Joe Mentum behind the attack on Ilhan Omar, or it was already dead yeah. because you had that joint resolution that Omar voted for. Uh, what they really wanted to do, what APAC really wanted to do was get her off the Foreign Affairs right. Committee in the House. Right. She is on um, the, a committee, a foreign relations committee, that will be in charge of what happens globally with our diplomacy. I'm uncomfortable with that in the same way that I was uncomfortable with Steve King being on that. Well, Elliot Engel wanted to get rid of yeah. her, and that failed. So um, I think it was a defeat for APAC. Yeah. I think that we should pay attention to what's happening in the UK. I just did a interview oh, with yeah, the. Oh yeah, you want to talk about that too? Yeah, I just did an interview with uh, 
Mr. Topple at the Canary. The Canary is one of the best uh, websites to follow from the UK if you want to know what's happening uh, around the attempts to basically dislodge Jeremy Corbyn and how the movement behind him is fighting back. Right. But the but it's all they've manufactured this gigantic anti-Semitism scandal. By they, I mean the pro-Israel lobby in the UK and the Blairite elements within Labour. The Labour Party's splitting, and it's important because I know a lot of your viewers. Uh, are really into Bernie Sanders, and a lot of them were galvanized by his 2016 campaign. This will be done to Bernie Sanders, who's yeah. Jewish, without any shame. Right? Yeah, like, they're already pretending he's not a real Jew. Yeah, and it's just gonna it's it's gonna get to there will be a Meghan McCain moment around Bernie right. where somebody calls him an anti-Semite and exposes it brings out the farce and like it forces the contradictions oh, into the open. Yeah, you sound like such a Marxist. Um, <laughs> You know who did that is this guy, Mr. Dane, who's part of this resistance network online, who called Bernie Sanders a fake fucking Jew. And then Isaiah Breen, is that his name, who used to work for Keith Ellison? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, that's yeah. anti-Semitic. And then he does the classic resistance bot move where he goes, I'm a black gay rape victim. You will not accuse me of that. And then they do this thing where it's like, I'm not an anti-Semite just because I criticize Bernie. It's like, no, you're an anti-Semite because you said he's a fake fucking Jew. Um, well, it's just... The worst form of anti-Semitism is when Gentiles decide to right. come in and determine who's a Jew and who isn't. But... Right. What about uh, – do you know Tom Watson at all, by the way? He's my favorite figure yeah. from the resistance. He's such a passive-aggressive tool. Well, there are two of them. There's also a really malicious Tom Watson in the in the uh, UK who's oh. a deputy chair of labor who's playing that role within the labor party as this little worm. He's but a worm, anyway. Tom Watson. Tom yeah. Watson constantly tweets about how bad Corbyn is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought that, like, given that it, Theresa May was on the other side, it would just the optics would be too bad, but apparently not. Well, this is the other thing I was going to say, which I just made this point with the Canary, uh, is that Tony Blair has said that he would prefer Jeremy Corbyn to lose than for Labor to win. Right. And this is how Bernie Sanders, I've... if he gets the nomination, will be treated I've said I keep I've said this the exact same thing on many occasions. I keep saying there are Democrats who would rather Bernie lose the primary and then have a Democrat lose to Trump than Bernie win both. Yeah, it's 100 percent true. So we'll, we're just going to have to watch that play out. And, you know, it's it, it, it's it's important for it to play out because if somehow he or Corbyn triumphs, it's the biggest repudiation to media and the kind of centrist political class's ability to shape the parameters of debate and to serve as gatekeepers. Yeah. And, you know, Trump represented that in many ways, but he also represents the oligarchy. Right. So it's not this final repudiation. Right. It's a pseudo repudiation. And then we'll see them try to actually undermine whatever exists of democracy right. to just end democracy as we know it. I, I call them the uh, emergency rule centrists, like Emmanuel Macron. Oh, yeah. You know, and if one of them gets in power in the UK, you're going to have like a yellow vest movement there and they'll have emergency rule and like they don't govern by consent. Yeah. They can't anymore because they've been discredited. Right. So all they can do is create delay the inevitable, which is some kind of left populism yeah. emerging to counter the right populism right, which that's is the already mainstream. The only way you beat it. The only way you beat it. Right. No, you beat it right. with moderates, idiots. Um, 
Can you do the Israel Lobby in two minutes? The Israel Lobby is a constellation of groups and individuals that aims to uh, dominate American politics and culture in order to preserve and perpetuate the special relationship between the U.S. and Israel, which guarantees Israel $4 billion in U.S. loans to purchase weapons from the United States and its arms manufacturers, as well as total diplomatic protection at the U.N. and within in, in, in the EU and Brussels. Uh, it uses a mixture of carrots and sticks uh, to punish critics, uh, driving them out of everything from, you know, city council positions to, uh, you know, school board positions to Senate seats. And uh, the carrots take the form of uh, campaign funding, which uh, was doled out to the tune of $15 million last year by pro-Israel organizations and donors. Uh, the largest donor to the Democratic Party as an individual is Haim Saban, who said he's a one-issue guy and his issue is Israel. And the largest individual donor to the Republican Party is Sheldon Adelson, who plays the same exact role and is also the key patron, patron of Benjamin Netanyahu's political career. Uh, the Israel lobby's main arm is APAC, which is not registered as a foreign agent under the Justice Department, as all other foreign lobbies are, and that allows it a level of it allows it to exempt an exemption from the transparency that Farah guarantees us with other foreign lobbying groups. So we don't actually know which journalists it's meeting with, which politicians it's meeting with, or what the full extent of its activities are. But it is acting on behalf of a foreign apartheid state that has enacted a program of con the continuous dispossession of an indigenous population. And those who criticize the Israel lobby should keep their focus on that and on what Israel is doing, because that's what the Israel lobby aims to prevent us from doing, from having that discussion and debate in our inside the institutions of our society. Um, what do you say to people who say, oh, but AICPAC doesn't donate any money? Yeah, what they do is they have stealth packs that they set up at the state level, uh, Delaware Valley Pack, which do donate money, as well as their uh, cadre of donors who seek to skirt campaign finance laws by getting together at parties and throwing their credit cards in a hat right. and then swiping the credit cards for $2,700, which is the maximum individual limit, or having people like Haim Saban donate to pro-Obama super PACs or pro-Clinton super PACs. So of course they donate money. It's just APAC doesn't do so directly. But if someone explained to me why it's consistently ranked the number two most powerful lobby in Washington behind the NRA or why it's office building on uh, 2nd Street and, and H Street in Northeast is uh, such a giant towering complex. Uh, they have a lot of money right. and they know what to do with it. So it isn't all about the Benjamins. That's part of it. But Ilhan Omar definitely hit on one of the most uh, kind of inconvenient truths of pro-Israel support in the United States, which, which is that it's, it is not organic. And that's why you have the, the um, Christian Zionist movement being incorporated into the Israel lobby because the Israel lobby is so top heavy. It consists of lobbyists and then a sector of Jewish population. We're 3.5% of the 
American public. So they call the Christian Zionists their safety belt in the Bible belt. And they've recruited them heavily. APAC actually helped set up Hagee's Christians United for Israel organization. And what they represent is the future of pro-Israel support in the U.S. Old, right-wing, you know, white nationalist, settler colonial-minded, apocalypse, uh, rapture-ready. And that's not a good thing for Israel, which is in the Israel lobby, which is always counted on bipartisan support, you know. Right. And Our generation of Jews has helped drive this, uh, break the consensus within the Democratic Party's base. And the problem is that the Democratic Party is not democratic enough to embrace the change that's happening at the grassroots level. So that's what we need to do next. And what does the rapture require from us? Um, the ingathering of the exiles, which means we have to move to uh, greater Israel, um, which can be defined as anywhere, not just between the river and the sea, but biblical Israel is anywhere between Egypt and Jordan. Um, then that was the original map of Israel as outlined by Herzl uh, through the Jewish National Fund. So we got to go there, probably not to Cairo. They probably want us in Jerusalem where Pastor Hagee leads these um, tours of the Hill of Megiddo where Christ, were, where Christ will descend on his white throne. And then if we fail to convert, and that doesn't mean just being a Christian like the Palestinian Christians who Pastor Hagee's people think are akin to Satan. We have to be born again in the blood of the lamb and be evangelical Christians to avoid burning in an everlasting lake of fire. Right. What, uh, when, yeah. yeah. When I cut you off. I mean, I always say like, I'm looking forward to the rapture because all those people will be out of my face. Right. Um, not that I am against all evangelical Christians, right. but I mean like the, the Hagee people who like sit around watching Fox News and having this deriving this weird libidinal satisfaction from obsessing over Ilhan Omar and AOC. Um, Don't we also but, have to, we there are a certain number of us can't, even if we all got on board, there's a certain- 100, 144,000. Or what? Will, uh, will be uh, saved yeah. who are Jews. Uh, for for whatever reason, I, I I don't know what role we're gonna play in the heavens, but right. 144,000. But the rest, burn in an everlasting lake of fire. But I've always said, you know, I'll, if if that doesn't happen, I'll take you know Hagee's RV, right. his like Winnebago or whatever. He he has like a pretty nice house right. in Texas. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's their that's their end goal. And the way that the Israel lobbyists and Israel supporters have justified it to me is they say, well, we know it's not going to happen, so why should we care? Right, exactly. It's totally cynical and opportunistic. Yeah. Which can't be said of their alliances with Hungary, with um, right-wing governments in Poland and Hungary, where neo-Nazism is actually on the rise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did they follow the Polish Independence Day ceremony? It wasn't like... It wasn't exactly a Jew-friendly right, zone. Right. <laughs> what is the future of Israel, and what do you say to people who say, oh, but Israel's a democracy. How could you say it's an apartheid state? Well, the future of Israel is uh, militarism and right-wing demagogy, uh, a one-state reality where the majority of the population is Palestinian living um, – behind a combination of walls, uh, sophisticated surveillance mechanisms, uh, underneath drones, and inside a series of cantons and fortified ghettos. 
uh, who are, the, again, the majority of the population who have no rights and no freedom of movement uh, and are denied all protections under the Geneva Conventions. Therefore, you have an apartheid state because the two-state solution never happened. We're in a one-state reality. And so the question is, what kind of state will that be? Will it be an apartheid state or will it be a binational state where all of its residents have equ equality, enjoy equality? I, it's just sort of hard to deny yeah. that Israel's an apartheid state at this point. Also, when it passes laws through yeah. its Knesset, like the nation state I didn't law, know that until Juan Cole mentioned it the other day. Yeah, where they formalize the second class status of Palestinian citizens of Israel, who actually enjoy sort of like fourth class status, remove Arabic as an official language, which was the language of the land right. before Israel existed, and, and essentially set the stage for annexation of the West Bank because this law makes it clear that if the West Bank is annexed, those Palestinians who are brought into Israel in a formal sense cannot have the right to vote. They cannot declare one person one vote because this law was already passed. And this law was passed in what is supposed to be Israel's democratic body. In which, a country which oh, is supposed to be the only democracy in the Middle East. And we, I mean, it's it's clearly not the, even if it were a democracy, it wouldn't be the only democracy in the Middle East. I mean, Tunisia, Tunisia is yeah. technically a democracy. Um, you know, Turkey is not, it, it's not like the very democratic country, but it's right. sort of it's sort of technically functions sure. along democratic lines. So anyway, every I think everybody watching this rejects the kind of the idea of Israel as a democracy. Yeah. Um, but I, I just I always have ever since I started to get woke on the issue. Right. And, you know, I wrote this book, Goliath, in 2013 about Israel's permanent right wing future, um, you know, the rise of fascism in Israel and the mainstreaming of fascism. Right. And I, you know, feel like looking at the situation today politically, it was almost like I went soft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you didn't get how bad it would be. Tony Jutt, the historian who died, I remember when, uh, I think he wrote something in the New York Review of Books or London Review of Books, said that he thought that Netanyahu's um, election was going to end the kind of liberal Jewish consensus and support of Israel because he was so right wing, but he was wrong, obviously. Yeah, um, there was this attempt to reframe Netanyahu as a you know maybe he'll make peace. Oh right, because uh, it, it'll take believes... it require someone like that right, right. to do it. Because yeah. if a leftist it, in Israel, they won't have the support. Blah blah. It's like Nixon going to China. Right. Even though Nixon was actually going to China to, uh, to divide China and mm. the Soviet Union. But anyway, uh, that didn't happen. Netanyahu was Netanyahu. Right. Netanyahu's he gonna like, Netanyahu. If it walks like a Netanyahu and talks like, you know. Yeah, which is scary. It, His voice is scary. And it's uh, and so and, sinister. And, and, and if it says that, you know, he owns the land because he bought a ring at a Jerusalem pawn shop that says Netanyahu, which actually just means he was here and denies that his family's real name was Milikovsky, then it's a Netanyahu. I didn't know that story. That's interesting. Uh, when John Boehner brought him in, it's like, I'm a used car salesman coming to speak to all these stupid goys, right. and I'm going to tell them this crazy story about how I found a ring. In my office, I have a signet ring that was loaned to me by Israel's Department of Antiquities. This ring was found right next to the Western Wall, but it dates back 
2,800 years ago, 200 years after King David declared Jerusalem as our people's capital. Now, this ring is a seal of a Jewish official, and his name is inscribed in it, on it, in Hebrew. The name is Netanyahu. Netanyahu Ben Yoash. Now, that's my last name. My first name, Benjamin, dates back a thousand years earlier to Benjamin, the son of Jacob. One of Jake Benjamin's brothers was named Shimon, which also happens to be the name of my good friend Shimon Peres, the president of Israel. You see, nearly 4,000 years ago, Benjamin, Shimon, and their 10 brothers roamed the hills of Judea. Ladies and gentlemen, the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel cannot be denied. The connection between the Jewish people and Jerusalem cannot be denied. And George Will wrote it up and was like, Netanyahu in his office has a ring. Oh my and it's, God. It is 3,000 years old from the Roman Empire and it says Netanyahu. That's amazing. Like, he was just there, Bibi was just there. Actually, he was from Lithuania and he probably has more connection to Sarah Palin's family, right. which is said to be Lithuanian Jews than oh, he does. Oh, I didn't know that. She has supposedly Lithuanian Jewish ancestry. That's amazing. Um, he also, there's vi video footage of him saying that the Americans can be moved. Oh yeah, America's, yeah. Yeah, you know, he meant he meant APAC. Right. Like America is a thing you can easily move. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Awesome. Thanks Thank for you. having yeah. me. Um, Max Blumenthal, everyone follow him. Yeah, well, I'll have you on again to talk about your book. I have to read it. Thanks. But, yeah. I'll look forward to it. We should do a live event. We should. We'll yeah. do it. All right. Moderate Rebels. Oh, yeah. Uh, collab collaboration. Oh, yeah. And then and, uh, Ben will be like, holo, holo, en los Estados Unidos. I just made him sound like Argentine, though. That's not really fair. Um, all right. All right. Peace. Bye. In the Middle East. You can follow Max's work on Twitter at Max Blumenthal or at his website, The Gray Zone. He also is the co-host with Ben Norton of the podcast Moderate Rebels. Max Blumenthal is an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including best-selling Republican Gomorrah, Goliath, The 51-Day War, and The Management of Savagery. He has produced print articles for an array of publications, many video reports, and several documentaries, including Killing Gaza. Blumenthal founded The Gray Zone in 2015 to shine a journalistic light on America's state of perpetual war and its dangerous domestic repercussions. You can follow me on Twitter at KT Halps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. The Katie Halper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Music is by the band Cordova. 